Tēnā koutou no mai, haere mai. Welcome to Q&A, I'm Jack Tame. This is our first show of 2022, and as we go to air, protests continue on the grounds of Parliament. The Beehive has seen plenty of protests before, but these are different. Protesters have shared violent and threatening messages, and politicians are being careful not to dismiss the threat. This is a continuation of the harassment that the Prime Minister's seen, um, of the kind of you know, intimidation and bullying that unfortunately is associated with these people. We'll also talk to Grant Robertson about the increasing cost of living and what he can do to slow it down. And then we're off to Hawke's Bay and a fierce debate over who should get access to the region's limited water supplies. And that's all we're asking them to do, is look after the little folk that need water to survive. The 2022 political year has begun with a test of our democracy. Think about it, we have a group of people protesting an extraordinary state-issued health mandate that for many will have cost them jobs or entire livelihoods. They're at the very feet of our parliament buildings, defying the laws that are set inside the House. Much of the protest has been peaceful, but you've seen some of the messages. Politicians and journalists have been threatened with execution. Police have made more than 100 arrests. Kylie Quince is the Dean of the AUT Law School and part of an independent panel that advises police on how best to handle complex situations. And she's with us this morning. Tēnā koe, welcome to Q&A. Morena, Jack. As a test of democracy, how does this rate? Well, it's clearly a test of democracy, as any large-scale public protest is. It's the... You know, the ultimate question for the police is, is do they go in heavy-handed? Do they allow things to run with a certain amount of minor law-breaking and public discomfort and civil disobedience? So the question is, at what threshold do they intervene uh, to stop that right to protest? How do you think the police have handled the protest so far? So far, I mean, what are we at? Day five or six? Uh, so far, pretty good, I think. And I think it's that's generally consistent with, you know, in recent decades, you know, probably since the Springbok tour, uh, Takaparafo, Bastion Point, pretty high watermarks or watershed moments of poor police practice, in my view. Uh, but in recent decades, this has tended to be the culture of the New Zealand police, to, to allow people to, you know, um, exercise their right to protest and cause a bit of discomfort and, you know, possibly public disagreement. But I think they've done pretty well. As they've pivoted to arrest when people have gone sort of a bit beyond those minor um, infringements and, you know, dealt, dealt with those behaviours accordingly. I mean, these protesters have been trespassed from the grounds of Parliament, but they are standing there with their tents, those that have survived the storm overnight, openly defying that trespass order. Should police not be arresting all of these protesters? So a couple of issues there. Trespass is a, is a, a breach of civil law, not criminal law. So the police would not normally arrest on the basis of a trespass. That's a matter of private property rights between the people that um, issue the trespass notice uh, and the people who have been trespassed. Um, so the question is, whether what, is, what were the grounds um, underpinning the trespass? Mm. You know, were they serious public disorder, criminal behaviours? And there certainly have been some worrying behaviours in terms of threats to politicians and other public figures. 
um, you know, and some certainly some pretty far right elements there that uh, are a bit concerning. But again, the police have known of these people for, in some cases, many, many years. So they know who they're dealing with. Uh, the question is, again, have they, have they, you know, breached the threshold of appropriate level of, you know, democratic right to to have their opinions as as distasteful as the majority of us might find them. So, so if if it isn't a criminal issue when it comes to those trespass orders, what about a gathering of this size under the red alert level settings? Yes, that's a good question. Um, so, of course, those are, um, you know, again, regulatory offences. Mm. Uh, so they are a breach of the law. Um, is is that the appropriate threshold? Possibly not, because there's the issue of consistency in terms of the way the police handled the Black Lives Matter protests, particularly the one in Auckland, at which I was present, which was a breach of the level then COVID level two. Uh, regulations or rules, uh, but also the protests by the, you know, Freedom and Rights Coalition and uh, Destiny Church and others in recent months. Uh, again, where the police have taken a, a, a pretty much hands-off uh, attitude. So breach of those regulations, yes, they're, they're a breach, but um, possibly again not mm. not significant enough to to make a move, um, not serious enough criminal behaviour. See, that's interesting because police chose not to intervene more forcefully with the Black Lives Matter protest, they are essentially bound by the same consistency standards for this protest. I think there's something to be said for that. So, you know, putting aside the obviously wildly uh, different uh, yeah. different uh, nature of the protest and, other, you know, the, the subject matter, uh, and, of course, the police, rightfully so, have to, have to park that, the fact that we're talking about two very different issues. It really is just the nature of the conduct and behaviour of the people. There, other than the breach of the COVID Level 2 situation uh, rules, there was nothing problematic that I recall from the Black Lives Matter protest um, and similarly, for the most part, including the protests at the Auckland Domain recently. So you're really looking at other behaviours. You know, that, that's, that's something that it looks like, as you say, um, the police have decided not to move on. And, and partly because there's been communication. So one of the police strategies in recent decades, which I think has worked very well, uh, from the foreshore and seabed protests some years ago with uh, Wally Homaha negotiating with those protests on the Hikoi from the very north of the North Island right down to Parliament. Not a single arrest, tens of thousands of people involved. Mm. So that's, that's one of the police strategies, communication with protest leaders to you know, have, take, have undertakings as to what kind of behaviour. And in this, in this context, you know, the... Uh, the attempt to abide by or an understanding to abide by COVID rules. That's something that seems to be missing in the current protests because of the quite divergent people and the lack of cohesive leadership amongst the protesters in Wellington at the moment, that there doesn't seem to be the same communication point as perhaps there has been in those other recent protests. So where do you draw the line? Because there'll be people looking at this protest, indeed, as there were people looking at the Black Lives Matter protests, who say... These protesters are breaking the law. Police need to step in and be more forceful. So, so the question, of course, so the, the police have a mandate to police under the Policing Act to protect public safety and keep public order. So that's a call for them mm. as to, which is not necessarily about breaking the law per se, but about infringements of, yeah, infringements of the law, but also fear about wider public discord. And that wider public discord might actually be the remainder of the public, say the public of Wellington, saying, we've had enough, we want to get to 
you know, Molesworth Street, we want to get to the grounds of Parliament, we want to get to Victoria University Law School, for example. So the, the facilities, whether they are, you know, commercial facilities, educational facilities that are being affected, it may well be that the public disorder actually comes from the, the rest of the public saying, we're a bit ha with this and, we, and we've had enough. So again, that's for the police to make a decision, not politicians. That's it's a completely constitutionally separate entity. Um, so, yeah, again, that, that's a call for the police. My personal view, um, I think we're pretty close to that next stage. You know, this is a staged intervention by the police, which I think has been appropriate. So the next stage, I mean, some of the, the rhetoric coming out is, you know, verging on hate speech, threats to kill. This is beyond trespass and some minor willful damage and public inconvenience. If we get to both a swelling of numbers, that it looks like there could be further public affray, that might be an appropriate time for the police to, to step it up, really. OK, so what, what will that look like? Uh, good question. It may be step up in terms of arrests, uh, forcible removal of the vehicles. There, is, there are currently still apparently more than 100 vehicles in the area. That's a pretty significant disruption to, you know, to public life mm. and business and the civil rights of others. So, of course, that, at the test of democracy you, you, you led in with is, of course, the balancing of the rights of this very small minority versus the overwhelming majority of, of the New Zealand public. Now, that includes, of course, the rights of other Wellingtonians and people mm. coming to Wellington to go about their ordinary business. So, um, and you see these kinds of protests in other democracies. So, in the United States, for example, very common for, to see the American Civil Liberties Union, mm. you know, protecting the rights of the KKK to march down the street. And so long as they keep to themselves and don't unnecessarily infringe upon the rights and freedoms of others, um, then that's okay. But yeah, as I say, what, what it might look like, step removal of the vehicles, possibly forcible removal of, of those people. There's risk to that, obviously. Not only yeah. political risk, but also risk in terms of trust of the police. Um, you know, this commissioner, uh, Commissioner Andy Costa, has made a big play to that traditional policing, common law policing, of policing by consent. That we, we um, abide by the social contract, that we all believe in the rule of law. As long as people, um, and this, there are people here that seem to be pushing mm. uh, those boundaries. So, you know, there's a risk, of course, of playing into their narrative. Nobody wants to make martyrs out of these people. So while that won't necessarily be influencing the police uh, action, it will certainly part, be part of the mm. decision-making process. Well, one suspects they'll be martyrs regardless of how this ends. But it's interesting, Kylie, you talked about two points that police will be considering when they move to the next stage of managing this protest. One is the inconvenience that perhaps this protest is causing for other people in Wellington. But the, the first that you mentioned was the threatening messages that some protesters have been sharing. But we saw those on day one. You know, we saw, we saw chalk writing on the forecourt of Parliament threatening politicians with execution on day one. We have seen signs saying, quote, hang him high. Shouldn't that have been the threshold where police stepped in and said, I'm sorry, this has actually passed the point of a peaceful protest? It could have been. I, I think that one of the factors that might 
uh, be relevant here, much like the law of conspiracy, that uh, people are allowed to have terrible thoughts and say terrible things as an individual single person. Once more people join into either a group or uh, into a space where, uh, where that's happening, there's the possibility of influence of other people. So the, uh, the fact that there are more people there, numbers have swelled over the weekend, then there's the risk that of contamination, really, group contamination, mm. which means that the likelihood of um, people being influenced by those messages and, and perhaps doing something about them, um, you know, that that could have an effect on the people that are there. Right. It's a nuanced <laughs> position you're taking for us this morning, which we appreciate. I wondered if you had any thoughts on the protesters themselves. Looking at the group that is gathered outside Parliament, it's clear that a significant proportion of those protesters are Māori. And I wondered if you had any thoughts as to why so many Māori have turned out for a protest that is explicitly anti-state. Look, well, uh, and I think you've hit the nail on the head with the very last part of your, your intro there, which is anti-state, you know, of course. So there's a, a disparate um, group of peoples there, as you've said, uh, who would not... This is a matter of interest convergence. So the thing that mm. these people have in common is mistrust, particularly mistrust of public institutions, the legitimacy of the state. And, of course, for, uh, for those Māori, it would tend to be people who... Um, uh, uh, you know, live those lives generally. So pre-pandemic, who had, you know, a, a lack of civic engagement, um, possibly mostly rural uh, people, working class, um, some beneficiaries, of mm. course. So, so that is, you know, what they have in common with the other people there. So that's not surprising at all. You know, it's a um, any sort of opportunity to be to show anti-crown sentiment, anti-police sentiment, uh, will of course be taken up by significant numbers of of Maori at every opportunity. Having said that, of course, the overwhelming majority of Maori, um, as we've seen in the the growth of uh, numbers of vaccinations and boosters, mm. um, are, are stand alongside to the majority of New Zealanders in general. Do you think we could have avoided this kind of sentiment if? the government had published some sort of plan for ending the mandates, a framework for ending the mandates in the future? Uh, possibly. Um, although it's such a movable face. To, to be honest, I, I, so, so the short answer mm. is yes, how that would have been possible, I'm, I'm not sure. But, but yes, that is, that is clearly one of the issues, not just in terms of uh, the issues that these protesters are raising, but the rest of us in mm. civic life in terms of continued engagement and employment, education, uh, public life and hospitality. Uh, people need to see, have some, you know, it's the uncertainty that is... Um, mm. Uh, making people worried and we can see I can see that in my own workplace in terms of you know what we do with people who are, are unvaccinated or wary about um, you know continuing to engage in mm. public life. Okay this is perhaps outside your wheelhouse but you are a thoughtful person and I'm interested in your thoughts. Um, what happens in six months if the mandates have ended if the worst of COVID-19 has passed us how do we repair the relationship between this group of people and the democracy that they are so angry at? That's an excellent question. And what, and what that question is essentially asking is, is there a way back from this in terms of social cohesion? Mm. New Zealanders tend to be quite socially cohesive. That's why, I mean, the, the messaging of the team of six million resonates generally with our... Um, our nature as as citizens and, and peoples of Aotearoa, whether we are tangata whenua or tangata tiriti. Um, so, so I think that we do tend to live with a, a great deal of social cohesion. 
However, there have always been that fringe element, and, the, and I think that this is you know, no greater than the numbers um, of, of um, people who are unhappy generally. Mm. Um, does that mean that we shouldn't uh, attempt to bring them back into the fold? No, there should be some attempt. So I'm aware of some of the work of some of the government ministries and public agencies that are um, working on this, this concept of social cohesion and bringing people together. So that does need to be done, whether it's through public health messaging, education. So in six months' time, uh, attempting to bring people back in who may have been left in the cold for a number of months um, and who will be, continue to be angry uh, and disillusioned and perhaps distrustful, that's mm. going to be essential. So there's going to have to be a, you know, government working groups and public working groups to um, really work on that. Thank you so much for your time. That is Kylie Quince. She is the Dean of the AUT Law School. After the break on Q&A, I ask the Deputy Prime Minister about the protests. Plus, inflation hits its highest point in three decades. What responsibility does your government take for that figure? Hoki Maiti, we welcome back. Right now, the cost of living is growing at the fastest rate we've seen in 30 years. Petrol, food, rents, interest payments on mortgages, inflation in New Zealand is at almost 6%. And the OECD has called on New Zealand to tighten government spending. So, after supporting businesses and workers with billions of dollars throughout the pandemic, what's the plan? I sat down with Finance Minister Grant Robertson and I began by asking him about the protests outside Parliament. Well, every New Zealander's got a right to peaceful protest, and I think it is important in our democracy that we uphold that. The problem with these protests is they've gone well beyond that. You know, they've demonstrably broken the law. Their cars are all around Wellington blocking the roads. They have structures on the lawn of Parliament, which you're not allowed to have. Uh, and so the police have been taking action to, to deal with the fact that they have broken the law. Beyond that, um, I do find the rhetoric of these protests highly disturbing. There was chalk writing on the forecourt of parliament that wanted to hang politicians. Our families see that, and this is a continuation of the harassment that the Prime Minister's seen, um, of the kind of you know, intimidation and bullying that unfortunately is associated with these people. There's a sad element to it. There is a conspiracy theory element that people have been sucked in by, but ultimately uh, this protest needs to end. Uh, it's in the hands of the police as to how they do that. They are the operational masters of their destiny and we have to trust them. And I do want to thank them for the work that they've been doing. Would you have liked to have seen the police take a firmer position earlier? As I say, it is totally up to the police how they manage a situation like this, and none of us have the, either the experience or indeed the, you know, the right to but say you, that. You said that the cars are everywhere. Yeah. You've seen those three. As I say, I mean, I'm on the record as the local MP here mm. of having urged the police to take action. Um, they have taken action, but the exact way they do that does need to be their decision. You are a finance minister in the midst of an inflation crisis. Inflation's at 5.9%. What responsibility does your government take for that figure? I think it's really important to look at the, the big drivers of that, and it is in areas like the price of petrol, fuel costs, the price of building supplies. Uh, we do have an economy where demand is high. We have recovered very fast from the first waves of COVID. That's a good thing. It means people are in work. It means that people are, you know, are earning money. But yes, there's quite a high demand, particularly in the building sector. Uh, but the government has to take a step back and say, well, if we were to address that, 
that would mean we'd stop building state houses. That's no doubt something we'll come to discuss in this interview, is around how we're addressing the housing crisis. So the real drivers, the big things are global. Every country in the world is facing them. Of course the government needs to be careful about the way we spend our money, we always are, but we're not going to lower the price of petrol by cutting health spending. We have to be realistic about the fact that the government has a long-term programme of work. Uh, but yes, you know, we, we always look at our expenditure, but these are mainly offshore drivers. Uh, OK, so that, that's an interesting point, isn't it? Because I don't think anyone would deny that there are significant global factors at play here. But non-tradable inflation, so domestic inflation is at 5.3%. Uh, Non-tradables are coming in hot, said <laughs> ANZ. The OECD said last week that policy stimulus, your decisions, have contributed to overheating the economy. So again, what responsibility do you take for that? So when you look at the, the additional fiscal stimulus, particularly in the period between where we had inflation that was running within the Reserve Bank's um, you know, band of 1% to 3% compared to where we are now, particularly what we did during the Delta outbreak, that was the wage subsidy, the resurgence support payments. And I would challenge any other politician to say, would they not have done those things? Because they were important in keeping people in work. So that's the fiscal stimulus that's been referred to there by the OECD. But it's the quality of that spend, isn't it? Because, because on a GDP per capita basis, New Zealand has pumped more money into the economy than any other country in the OECD except for the United States. Yeah, and I stand by the decisions to do that, mm. to keep people in jobs, to save livelihoods along with saving lives. We've now withdrawn that across the board fiscal mm. stimulus. And what we're focused now on is the targeted kind of support where those sectors are really struggling even within the red settings. So we have responded to that. But I don't think you can have that degree of 2020 hindsight. And actually, I don't think that's what New Zealanders wanted. So yes, we're in an inflationary environment driven, I believe, mostly by global trends. And even within those so-called non-tradables, you've got issues like building mm. supplies that actually are driven by the fact we can't get them into New Zealand because of shipping problems internationally. I'm not underestimating the impact of the rising cost of living on New Zealanders. When you show up at the petrol station and it's getting close to three bucks a litre, that is tough for people. We know that those who are the most affected by inflation are those on the lowest incomes, mm. and we've taken action to lift those incomes. I'd also note that the Treasury and most bank economists say that we are nearing the peak of this inflationary cycle and it will come down. Doesn't stop it from being hard for people right now, but it will come down over the course of the next year. Would you consider any changes to petrol taxes? Well, obviously we committed to not increasing it in this term of government, and we haven't done that. And so that would you, would you lower some of those taxes? I don't think that that, I mean, Temporarily no. The even? short answer to that question is no, because um, the fuel excise duty is what pays for roads and mm. public transport in New Zealand. It's a hypothecated tax, yeah. and all we would be doing then is exacerbating a long-term problem we have. OK, so, so the inflation forecast you've just referred to suggests that we might be reaching the peak sometime soon, but of course the new data out of the United States has inflation at 7.4%, and at the same time you're saying that global factors are the big influence on this. So what else will you do as Finance Minister to ensure that inflation doesn't continue to grow? Well, we've got the first thing we've got to do is make sure we support the people most affected by it. So we obviously have the benefit increase that's coming in on the 1st of April. We've got the minimum wage increase that we've recently announced because we do need to support people through this. We'll continue to take the careful, balanced approach that we have all the way through to public spending. But I repeat, we're not going to lower the cost of petrol by not investing in the health system. 
we're not going to be able to address some of these big mm. issues around housing if we don't keep building state houses. So, yes, we will be careful. Yes, we'll take a balanced approach. But in the end, we've got a long-term responsibility to New Zealanders here. You say you're being careful. You say it's balanced. According to your budget policy statement in December, you are planning a $6 billion increase in the May budget. How, when inflation is the highest it's been in three decades, can you justify that kind of increase at this moment? So in that budget policy statement, I talked about the fact that the two big things we were going to be dealing with for that new spending were the reform of New Zealand's health system and addressing climate change issues. When it comes to our health system, we have to keep going. COVID has truly tested it, and we've seen some gaps that need to be filled. That expenditure, Jack, is over a long period of time. That's over there. It doesn't start till the 1st of July to begin with, which is when inflation is supposed to be coming off its peak, and it does roll out over a period of time. But it is the same point. Cutting spending in those places isn't going to reduce inflation. The one area is around demand, demand in the economy and the contribution mm. that the government makes to demand, for example, in construction. And as I say, I think it would be the very definition of cutting your nose off to spite your face to say, no, we're going to stop building state houses because of this. We are subject to many of the same supply constraints and we're working with the construction industry on how we address that. So, for example, the construction accord is actually looking at specific mm. building products and how we can work together to bring them in more cheaply. Right. The question is the quality of the spend, though, isn't it? And that's what these questions keep coming back to. The OECD uh, said fiscal policy, quote, should be tightened in the near term. As I pointed out, a $6 billion increase in your budget spending plans for this year. So do you d disagree with that OECD sentiment? Um, I certainly disagree with the fact that that means we can't address long-term issues like health or climate, and I'm not really sure that's what the OECD is saying there. You know, it is important for us if we look at the climate change agenda, if we're going to meet our targets, we've got to start the work now. But the impact is across a really long period of time. Mm. So, and there are other cost pressures which are in fact driven by inflation that we have to meet as well. So, no, I, you know, I think the OECD understand that we had a very high level of fiscal stimulus to get New Zealanders through COVID. That has dropped away. So in part, we are dealing with the issues that they're raising. The other question is monetary policy, of course. Are you comfortable in an environment where we have inflation at almost 6% with a drop in asset prices of 10%. Mm. As, as you know from a conversation probably only about six weeks ago in your last show of last year, I, I don't tend to set those percentages. The first thing to are, are you comfortable with a drop in asset prices? The forecast is for that to occur. Um, are you comfortable with that? Um, as I say, I set the conditions, I'm part of setting the conditions. I'm not saying I'm uncomfortable with it. I think it is where the market is going. There are projections significantly less than that. I think we've got to be careful about that. Just, you know, I mm. rely on the Treasury projections for the way we do our budgets. Mm. Their drop in asset prices is somewhat lower than that, more around the 1% area. Are you comfortable with unemployment increasing to 45 or 5%? Again, we want to keep unemployment as low as possible. Of course you do, but are you comfortable with that if it means reducing inflation? The Reserve Bank makes its decisions on the basis of balancing the consideration of price stability and maximum sustainable employment. But you play a role. So I'm not, going to, I'm not going to interfere in the middle of that decision. What I would say is that in New Zealand we do have a very tight labour market at the moment, uh, but that is a result of the fact we have recovered well. We will be seeing 
an increase in people coming across the border hmm. um, as the borders open up. So I'm not, again, not going to put a number on that. I want to see unemployment stay as low as it can because I think it's good for New Zealanders to be in rewarding work. Yeah, okay, but it's a, it's a you can't have both, right? This is the tough well, situation you're in. both, Jack. That's the point. And that, in the case of monetary policy, hmm. is the job of the Reserve Bank for me. We're going to continue to invest in the skills that our workforce have. We're going to continue to invest in supporting companies to take people on. And we will be able to see more people come across the border to fill some of those labour gaps. Unemployment's at 3.2%. If we have the best labour market in 30 years, can you explain why there are 54,000 more people receiving main benefits than at the start of the pandemic? Yeah, well, obviously there's, there are a number of population-related matters that fuel that. But in addition to that, we do have people who are working some hours. You know, The Household Labour Force Survey measures any hours of work. It's a consistent survey, and therefore it is an important trendsetter, but obviously for people who have got um, less hours than they want or fewer hours than um, meet their needs, they often end up in, in receipt of some benefits. Mm. We've actually seen in recent times a much bigger increase in people moving off benefits and into work. So they do measure two different things, sure. and they are about... You know, this government has made a commitment to less use of sanctions and greater use of support mechanisms to support people. To OK, well, let's take a look at that, that second figure then. People who have been on a main benefit for more than a year, so perhaps not transitioning into work. There are almost 50,000 more people who have been receiving a main benefit for more than a year than in December 2019. Mm. That's a structural failure when you have unemployment at 3%. I don't, I don't actually accept it's a failure of the government's actions. What it is is a result of COVID. You've got to think about that whole period you've just covered there. But is, it, is that a dependency? People who are on uh, are receiving no, a main benefit for more I'd than a year? I'd argue it's the reason why we're now approaching it by investing much more in, in improving people's skills. Mm. Because one of the issues we've got here is a mismatch, and there is a mismatch, between a very tight labour market and the lack of the people with the skills that can fill that. That's been the focus for Minister Cipolloni, is how do we link people into programmes that improve their skills, mm. be it through things like mana and mahi, or be it through linking them up through micro-credentials, you know, the, the small skill-based industry training programmes. Mm. So I do accept that we have some mismatch there, and the government is working on that. All right. Hey, our interview with Grant Robertson continues after the break. Kia ora te whanau. welcome back. As you heard in the first part of our interview, Grant Robertson has given us his strongest indication yet that more government support will be given to certain sectors that are struggling under the current COVID-19 restrictions. But critics say the government's COVID-19 business support packages have contributed to inflation and led to a surge in inequality. At the Labour caucus retreat last month, Jacinda Ardern said this, the test of equity and fairness is how you manage a crisis. And I'd like to think through the last two years we've demonstrated Labour's values. Do you agree with that sentiment? Of course I agree with that sentiment. And I kind of know where you're about to go in terms of some of the things that have happened um, through this period of time. We do have to stop for a minute and say the very large amounts of money that we put through mm. the wage subsidy scheme, resurgent support payment, they kept people in jobs. And so ascribing that you know a particular group of people have benefited from that, I don't think is a sophisticated analysis of what actually happened there. Okay. That money got passed through and people kept their jobs. Let me ask this then. Relative to asset-owning New Zealanders, are people without assets, so the poorest New Zealanders, better off or worse off than at the start of the pandemic? 
obviously asset prices have inflated through the pandemic and so that people who have them have been proportionately better off. I will accept that. But what we have done during that period of time is ensured that people who, for example, are reliant on income support are better off. So inflation, you mentioned mm. before, up by up 5.9% in a year, benefits for both sole parents um, and those without children have increased at a greater proportion than that. So yes, if you're not an asset owner, clearly generally you won't be as well off. But from an income inequality point of view, we have sought to directly address those who are on the lowest income. Okay, well let's talk about that. You, you've, you've put in almost $19 billion in cash support for businesses throughout the pandemic. Over the same period, you've increased uh, the payments for the poorest New Zealanders through benefits by $48 million. $48 million versus $19 billion. That's a 380 times difference. How is that it's consistent not, with Labor's value? That is value? not a particularly useful comparison, Jack, between a, a number of people and a number of businesses. In those businesses, and this is the point that I made, the vast bulk of that money passed straight through to those workers. That's what kept them in their no, jobs. No, it doesn't. It, yes, passes, it, it passes through to profits. Look at this. Businesses received almost $19 billion in cash support in the 21 months since the start of the pandemic. Over the same period, their profits increased. So their profits weren't recorded. Exactly, their profits exactly increased Exactly the same businesses, Jack? By exactly the same. So you're telling me that you have a statistic that tells you that the people who got the wage subsidy are exactly the same businesses who had those I'm profits. I'm saying the people, I'm saying the businesses that received the wage subsidy and resurgent support payment... $19 billion over that period are the same businesses that recorded increased profits of $15 billion over that period. And what I'm saying is that we made a commitment via the wage subsidy scheme to keep people in work, to protect their livelihoods along with protecting their lives. I stand by that approach. The point is, we did recover quickly as a country. We did end up seeing companies make profits off the back of that. But I made a commitment when we signed up to that wage subsidy scheme that as long as those employers kept their workers in work, they were able to keep that money. Some of them have made the decision to pay it back, some haven't. But I'm standing by that commitment. But I don't accept that it's simply lining the pockets of a very small group of people. It actually kept 1.6 million New Zealanders in work. But it's also led to the inflation that we're experiencing now. I, I, not, in, so, in some part. I, I don't think in the majority part that it has. And I would, I would contest whether anyone else would have done anything differently in order to keep New Zealanders in what, work. Is there anything you can do now to try and recover some of that money? Yeah. I, I, know that, I know that you made a commitment not to mandate any form of recovery or anything like that. I know that businesses have returned about $4 billion. But again, you've seen an increase in profits of $15 billion. So the, particularly in the second part of the support that we gave, the majority of businesses who got it were very small businesses. Mm. Um, the larger companies didn't come around for a second go at the wage subsidy scheme. I think those SMEs in New Zealand deserve the support that we gave them. Mm. And so, no, I'm not intending to ask more of that. I do know that there are people who have been returning the money, though. You refused to increase benefits by roughly $50 a week because you were concerned, you said at the time, about managing government debt. And that's during a period that the number of food parcels being handed out by the Auckland City Mission has doubled. How yeah. is that consistent with the equity values of your party? Because in the budget in 2021, we increased benefits by the largest amount in a generation. That came on top of a previous increase that we made at the beginning of the pandemic. 
Uh, as I said before, if you're talking about a sole parent, you're talking about someone being $109 a week better off than they were when we came into office. So we have consistently increased uh, benefit rates. When we come to the 1st of April, we will be in a position where not only will benefits go up by the average wage, but they will also go up again as part of that increase. That is going to make a substantive difference in the lives of those people. So I believe a government that can say we've increased benefits by the greatest amount in a generation can stand by our values. Even a government that has in some way contributed to businesses increasing a profit by $15 billion over that same period. As I said, I stand by the fact that we kept people in work through the wage subsidy scheme. Where do you think retail interest rates will be at year's end? Yeah, again, uh, dangerous to pick and not my role to, to help set those. But clearly interest rates, um, the, the Reserve Bank has signalled that they're on the rise. Uh, and it will depend a lot on those global conditions where inflation ends up. But, you know, uh, they are rising and New Zealanders who have taken on debt during this period of time are going to experience some impact from that. I've pretty consistently said that whenever anyone takes on mortgage debt, they do need to think about what it will cost to pay back rather than what it costs when they borrow it. Um, and for some New Zealanders, that will have an impact. What is going to be the large-scale impact of that, do you think? Do you worry about it? Um, I certainly, you know, one of the things we do know about is that there is a wealth effect that comes for people when they own a home and they, mm. they see where they are. And if your mortgage payments go up, some of your discretionary spending will go down. That's a, a simply mm. a fact of life. So that does affect some other elements of the economy. We'll see where we go. We do have to remember we're coming off historically low interest rates and without mm. wanting to play the old man card you know when I bought my uh, home the only home I've ever owned 20 years ago I was paying you know seven eight percent interest when we did that um, so we are returning to a period of time where interest rates will be a little higher than the very very low rates that we've seen um, so you know it is a relative thing it's part of the economic cycle but it too will change and it will pass eventually we've got the draft detail now on your income insurance plans and you're seeking feedback on that at the moment. Why is now, with these inflationary pressures, the right time to introduce it? First things first is it won't be introduced until the end of 2023 at the earliest. That's the, the timeline that we're on. So we're not actually introducing the scheme right now. Why is it the right time to talk about it now? Because we have to, because had we had this scheme, um, when COVID hit, we would have avoided a great deal of economic scarring yeah. of people who did lose their jobs. Uh, and we also want to make sure that we're starting to address another issue, which is the way we deal with people who lose their jobs because of health conditions or disability, which we haven't been able to do in the past. So this actually would have been very helpful. This is the right time to have the conversation, but it doesn't get introduced until the end of 23. Um, I'm really proud of the fact that we designed this scheme with both Business New Zealand and the Council of Trade Unions. This is a tripartite scheme. The government hasn't just said, let's do this. We've sat down for over a year in discussion with those groups. We've reached out to Māori. We're talking to a range of different people about this. So this is a proposal that I think is a long-term project for New Zealand that fills a gap in our social security fabric. But I do know that people need to take their time to get their heads around it, and that's why we've got a long consultation period and then the legislation that will follow from that. Finally then, uh, I know this has been an unusual start to an unusual year. I just wondered when you're here in the Beehive, in your office, and you're able to look down at the protesters in the forecourt, do you feel scared? Do you, do you look at events overseas, the likes of the storming of the capital, and worry for your own safety? 
I think all politicians have taken time to take stock of that exact question in recent times. Um, the Prime Minister, as everyone will have seen, has been the subject of, of harassment and threats. Um, all politicians have had more of those in recent times. I have. Uh, the thing I think about, Jack, in those moments is not me, it's my family and the families of other politicians. They didn't sign up for this. And I think it's really important as New Zealanders that we take a breath. The second thing I think about is that that is a very small minority of New Zealanders down there. The vast majority of New Zealanders have decided that they want to look after themselves and all of the community that is around them by getting vaccinated, by getting boosted. So when I look down there, that's what I think. I've got great faith in New Zealanders. We've done so well through COVID as a team. There is a small group of people who don't want to be part of that. So be it. I'm going to keep focusing on the vast bulk of people who are doing the right thing. That is Finance Minister Grant Robertson. After the break on Q&A, the debate over how to divide Hawke's Bay's most precious resource. Hundreds of, hundreds of dollars, probably thousands over yeah. the years, uh, and I drive past these irrigators smashing thousands of litres. Hawke Mai, welcome back. It's been wet and windy around much of Aotearoa overnight, but communities in central Hawke's Bay are facing increasing competition for the region's scarce water supplies. And as Fina Owen reports, a group of farmers wants to take an even bigger share. Beneath the beautiful central Hawke's Bay, the water table that feeds it is lowering fast. That constant supply of water has stopped. Nearby, small townships like Unga Unga are on shallow bores. Some have dried up. We run out of water and then have to buy in water, or we end up sick from our bores uh, because there's not enough flow. This family spent nearly three grand on a UV filter after Dad Carl got sick. So I ended up yeah, chronically ill with Campylobacter and Yersinia all at once. Now you can see all the mineral, like the brown, so that's um, the lack of flow underneath. Some households have to fill up containers of water from the tap outside the shop or get it from kind neighbours with deeper bores. Neighbours like Simon Osborne. You can't afford to buy it. Water's actually dearer than petrol. An ad on the general store window promises water by the tanker load for a price. It's pretty heartbreaking. I've had to buy multiple tanks, hundreds of dollars, probably thousands over yeah. the years, uh, and I drive past these irrigators smashing thousands of litres that would fill my tank up in probably two minutes. Yeah. This local was keen to talk water, but not on camera. The river, the stream, never used to dry up. For, it would dry up for maybe two months a year, of a year. Now it's dry probably 10 months or 11 months a year. So, and the irrigators, there's more of them. They're running constantly. How much of this can be attributed to climate change? Certainly it's a factor, landowner Clint Deckard tells us, but there's no mystery here. Our regional council won't admit that our uh, aquifer is over-allocated. In Napier, we spoke to the CEO of the Hawke's Bay Regional Council. When you talk to those people in those settlements and they say they don't have enough water, the water quality is bad, and then they see 24-hour pivots going on dairy farms, you can see how they're joining the dots there. 
Absolutely. So uh, we've got a high level of sympathy for what has occurred by way of change in those communities. Uh, many of those households in the small rural communities in central Hawke's Bay have very old groundwater bores in their backyards, and which are typically very shallow. And as a consequence, they've been drilled down to where the water originally was before all of the intensive ir uh, irrigation and agriculture uh, expansion took place. The same phenomena that's causing people's bores in Onga Onga and Tiko to dry is happening here. There are springs drying up everywhere. And that, Clint says, is a tragedy for the native reserve bordering his property, the last remnant of Kahikatea forest in central Hawke's Bay. Springs are drying, the old Kahikatea giants are dying. I have no doubt that unless the allocation model changes, this will cease to be a Kahikatea forest. But the community's concerns don't stop there. Now, eight local farming companies have applied to the regional council for a further 15 million cubic metres of groundwater a year. How can this community survive when we're going to take another 53% out of our deep aquifer of the Ruatanifa Basin? Tukituka MP Anna Lok, along with Ngati Kaunganu and Forest and Bird, have all submitted against the application. That's a huge, massive amount of water to take. The Board of Inquiry, following the Ruatanifa Dam proposal, determined that the aquifer could cope with losing that amount if conditions are met. I'm standing on the Waipawa River, which is bone dry, not a trickle. If the applicants get their water consent, then the dealers, when the river level is low, they have to pipe water back into the river to keep it flowing. Where do they get the water from? From the aquifer. Next month, independent commissioners will hear the arguments for and against the controversial water bid. They will probably have public hearings, but in my personal view it will be a crock of shit. Um, and I say that because history will show that they're not listening to the other side of the story. Most people would be uh, in disagreement of actually going ahead, but it doesn't seem to matter anymore what us locals mm. do say. Q&A was keen to hear from the applicants of this big water consent, but they declined to be involved in this story. I suspect that one of the reasons that they are uh, not enthusiastic about uh, speaking in the media at the moment is they do want to meet directly uh, with the uh, applicants and the concerned citizens and have those discussions one-to-one and face-to-face. I have no animosity to those people who are extracting water for their farming uses. They're not doing anything illegal. Um, they were led to that by previous governments, by irrigation acceleration funds, by banks. They've been led into a system and uh, the model that the regional council has used to allocate water, I believe, is what's, what is the problem. That's caused the problem. This local says they're not waiting around for three waters to rescue the townships. They want government and council to step in now. And that's all we're asking them to do, is look after the little folk that need water to survive. Fina Owen with that report. After the break, the freedom of a 1080 tail grab, ah yes, versus the freedom of Hong Kong. The Beijing Winter Games through the eyes of a Hong Kong dissident.
and going for it on the rotation. And this is an excellent run so far. 0.058, it all comes down to this. Excellence, respect and friendship. Critics say the core Olympic values are an inappropriate fit for the Chinese government, which continues to draw international criticism for human rights abuses against its Uyghur minority and an anti-democratic crackdown in Hong Kong. Ted Hui is a former Hong Kong politician who fled after being arrested in pro-democracy rallies in Hong Kong in 2020. He's now in self-exile in Australia, trying to rally international support against the Chinese regime. Thank you so much for being with us. I just wondered, what does an event such as the Beijing Winter Games say about the image that the Chinese government is trying to present to the world? Um, it's a sport washing. Um, the Chinese government, the CCP regime, is trying to create an Im image that the country is open to the world and it's glamorous and it's prosperous and it's uh, sports and athletes are on top of the world and it's connected to the world while it's not, while uh, letting people forget all the human rights abuses, all the oppressions happened in Hong Kong, all my parliamentarian friends who are locked up in jail, or the genocide in, in the Xinjiang province. So it's totally just one word, sport washing. Has the government been successful in sport washing? Half and half. And if you look at it from a free country's perspective, of course not. And pe people are not forgetting all the crimes and all the oppressions, crackdowns behind it. But with its uh, different countries, in African countries, or its allies in, in other parts of the world. It's a great opportunity and business opportunity with the CCP regime. So I would say it's half and half in whether if it's successful. How would you describe the situation in Hong Kong at the moment? Hong Kong is in a terrible, terrible situation because Hong Kong is not recognizable. It's not the free and open city that uh, people from New Zealand would know mm. and so now uh, with the parliament all my uh, lawmaker friends and colleagues are locked up in jails and I would be in jail if I were still in Hong Kong uh, just for speaking up for freedom and democracy and then there's no uh, genuine elections the elections system has been changed and overhauled and now it's a total rubber stamp in order to run as a candidate you have to get approval by Beijing so it's not a democracy at all. In terms of press freedom, now journalists are going to jail as well. There are quite so many prosecution cases and media groups has to close down or they are too afraid to continue business. And also civil society disbanded, all the NGOs speaking for different mm. types of rights, even labor rights, they are disbanded. They are forced to disband themselves. I should say, of course, that the Chinese government would dispute your characterizations of the situation in Hong Kong and in Xinjiang province with the persecution of the Uyghur minority there. But these are well-documented criticisms of the Chinese regime as it stands. Australia and the US announced diplomatic boycotts of the Games. New Zealand didn't send anyone to the Beijing Winter Games, but New Zealand blamed COVID-19 as opposed to any political or human rights situations. What do you think of New Zealand's position? 
it's confusing. It sends a confusing message that uh, whether it's a boycott and whether uh, New Zealand is half endorsing uh, the Olympic Games and half uh, recognizing that there's no crime behind the Olympic Games. So I would also say it's an embarrassing situation for New Zealand because on one hand, it needs to uh, continue its closed economic tie with Beijing and without uh, saying things that would go too far uh, in Beijing's point of view. But at the same time, it's a free country. It's a democratic one. It has to stand up uh, for freedom and democracy. That's why when um, not sending officials, but not a boycott at the same time, it's embarrassing. And yeah, it's, it's a bit blurred on where New Zealand is standing, at least from the point of view from a persecuted person from, Hong, from a Hong Konger. Mm. That's interesting. I mean, as you pointed out, New Zealand and China have close economic ties. China is New Zealand's largest trading partner. So what should New Zealand mm. officials be doing? Um, I think there's not, it's not the time in history that a, a nation can separate economic business, economic interests with human rights at all. I think you have to talk about it uh, as a whole. Mm. When there's no human rights and there's no um, cooperation in any way, in any forms, even economic uh, interest in economic and trade relationships, they shouldn't be separated. And I think New Zealand should be uh, continuing uh, its traditional role in the world as a defender of freedom and democracy, speaking out loud and mm. clear for the Uyghurs, for the Hong Kongers. I, I really hope so. Ted, you have been in self-appointed exile for some time now. What, what would success look like for you in Hong Kong? Um, people would say that success would be like Hong Kong going back to where uh, it was uh, with one country, two systems, with freedoms and democracy, a half democracy at least in the past. But I would say it's not enough. After all the brutal crackdowns and all the human rights abuses, we don't trust the CCP regime anymore. We, we want it to step down. And so we don't want the world to recognize or endorse the regime in any way. So Hong Kong needs to be um, um, on its own, determining its uh, destiny. We want our basic freedom back. And the prerequisite is that the regime has to step down. And how confident do you feel? I'm sure people ask you this all the time, and it's a difficult question, but do you think you'll ever be back in Hong Kong? Um, it's not quite optimistic, at least not uh, in the near future. But I, I believe as long as we fight hard enough and build up allies in the world, like with Five Eyes, um, uh, with New Zealand, with free countries in the world, then we will be powerful enough one day, not soon. We'll, I, I hope I can go back in Hong Kong in glory and in freedom. And I believe that day will come, just not very, not too soon. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much for your time, Ted. We really appreciate it. That is Ted Hui, who Thank is you. a former member of the Hong Kong Legislative Chamber. Kua mutu. That is Q&A for this week. Thank you for watching. And mihi kia koutou i ngā karere. Thanks for your contributions. Hey, tērā wiki. We will see you next Sunday morning at 9am. Q&A is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air.